Helen's Babies, Part 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen's Babies by John Haberton, Part 7. There was an awkward pause. It seemed an age. Another blunder, and all on account of those dreadful children. I could think of no possible way to turn the conversation. Stranger yet, Miss Mayton could not do so either. Something must be done. I could at least be honest, come what would. I would be honest. "'Miss Mayton,' said I, hastily, earnestly, but in a very low tone. "'Budge is a marplot, but he is a truthful interpreter for all that.' But whatever my fate may be, please do not suspect me of falling suddenly into love for a holiday's diversion. My malady is of some month's standing. I—' "'I want to talk some,' observed Budge. "'You talk all the whole time. I—I—when I loves anybody, I kisses them.' Miss Mayton gave a little start, and my thoughts followed each other with unimagined rapidity. She did not turn the conversation— it could not be possible that she could not. She was not angry, or she would have expressed herself. Could it be that— I bent over her, and acted upon Budge's suggestion. As she displayed no resentment, I pressed my lips a second time to her forehead. Then she raised her head slightly, and I saw, in spite of darkness and shadows, that Alice Mayton had surrendered at discretion." Taking her hand, and straightening myself to my full height, I offered to the Lord more fervent thanks than ever he heard from me in church. Then I heard Budge say, "'I wants to kiss you, too,' and I saw my glorious Alice snatch the little scamp into her arms, and treat him with more affection than I ever imagined was in her nature. Then she seized Toddy, and gave him a few tokens of forgiveness. I dare not think they were of gratitude.' Suddenly two or three ladies came upon the piazza. "'Come, boys,' said I. "'Then I'll call with the carriage to-morrow at three, Miss Mayton. Good evening.' "'Good evening,' replied the sweetest voice in the world. "'I'll be ready at three. "'Budge,' said I, as soon as we were fairly outside the hedge-gate, "'what do you like better than anything else in the world?' "'Candy,' said Budge, very promptly.' "'What next?' "'Oranges.' "'What next?' "'Oh, figs and raisins, and dear little kitty-kitties, "'and drums and picture-books, and little bacon-dishes to make mud-pies in, "'and turtles, and little wheelbarrows.' "'Anything else?' "'Oh, yes, great big black dogs, and a goat, and a wagon for him to draw me in.' "'Very well, old fellow, you shall have every one of those things to-morrow.' "'Oh!' exclaimed Budge. "'I guess you're something like the Lord, ain't you?' "'What makes you think so, Budge?' "'Oh, cause you can do such lots of things at once. "'But ain't poor little Todd going to have nothing?' "'Yes, everything he wants. "'What would you like, Toddy?' "'Wants a candy cigar,' replied Toddy. "'What else?' "'Don't want nothing else. "'Don't want to be boddered with lots of things.' The thoughts which were mine that night, the sense of how glorious a thing it is to be a man and be loved, the humility that comes with such a victory as I had gained, 
the rapid alternation of happy thoughts and noble resolutions, what man is there who does not know my whole story better than I can tell it? I put my nephews to bed, I told them every story they asked for, and when Budge, in saying his prayers, said, "'And bless that nice lady that Uncle Harry specs,' I interrupted his devotions with a hearty hug. The children had been awake so far beyond their usual hour for retiring that they dropped asleep without giving any special notice of their intention to do so. Asleep, their faces were simply angelic. As I stood, candle in hand, gazing gratefully upon them, I remembered a sadly neglected duty. I hurried to the library and wrote the following to my sister. Hillcrest, Monday night. Dear Helen, I should have written you before had I been exactly certain what to say about your boys. I confess that until now I have been blind to some of their virtues, and have imagined I detected an occasional fault. But the scales have fallen from my eyes, and I see clearly that my nephews are angels, positively angels. If I seem to speak extravagantly, I beg to refer you to Alice Mayton for collateral evidence. Don't come home at all. Everything is just as it should be. Even if you come, I guess I'll invite myself to spend the rest of the summer with you. I've changed my mind about its being a bore to live out of town and take trains back and forth every day. Ask Tom to think over such bits of real estate in your neighborhood as he imagines I might like. I repeat it. The boys are angels, and Alice Mason is another, while the happiest man in the white goods trade is your affectionate brother, Harry. Early next morning I sought the society of my nephews. It was absolutely necessary that I should overflow to someone, someone who was sympathetic and innocent and pure. I longed for my sister, my mother, but to someone I must talk at once. Budge fulfilled my requirements exactly. He was an excellent listener, very sympathetic by nature, and quick to respond. Not the wisdom of the most reverend sage alive could have been so grateful to my ear as that child's prattle was on that delightful morning. As for Toddy, blessed be the law of compensation. His faculty of repetition, and of echoing whatever he heard said, caused him to murmur, Miff Mayton, Miff Mayton, all morning long, and the sound gained in sweetness by its ceaseless iteration. To be sure, Budge took early and frequent occasions to remind me of my promises of the night before, and Toddy occasionally demanded the promised candy cigar, but these very interruptions only added joy to my own topic of interest each time it was resumed. The filling of Budge's orders occupied two or three hours, and all the vacant space in the carriage. Even then the goat and goat carriage were compelled to follow behind." The program for the afternoon was arranged to the satisfaction of everyone. I gave the coachman, Mike, a dollar to harness the goat and teach the children to drive him. This left me free to drive off without being followed by two small figures and two pitiful howls. I always believed a horse was infected by the spirit of his driver. My dear old four-footed military companions always seemed to perfectly comprehend my desires and intentions. And certainly my brother-in-law's horses entered into my own spirits on this particular afternoon. They stepped proudly, they arched their powerful necks handsomely, their feet seemed barely to touch the ground, yet they did not grow restive under the bit, 
nor were they frightened even at a hideous steam road-rolling machine which passed us. As I drove up to Mrs. Clarkson's door, I found that most of the boarders were on the piazza. The memories of ladies are usually good at times. Alice immediately appeared, composed, of course, but more radiant than ever. "'Why, where are the boys?' she exclaimed. "'I was afraid they might annoy your mother,' I replied, "'so I left them behind.' "'Oh, mother hardly feels well enough to go to-day,' said she. "'She is lying down.' "'Then we can pick up the boys on the road,' said I, "'for which remark my enchantress, already descending the steps, "'gave me a look which the ladies behind her "'would have given their best switches to have seen.' We drove off as decorously as if it were Sunday, and we were driving to church. We industriously pointed out to each other every handsome garden and tasteful residence we passed. We met other people driving, and conversed fluently upon their horses, carriages, and dress. But when we reached the edge of the town, and I turned into Happy Valley, a road following the depressions and curves of a long, well-wooded valley, in which there was not a single straight line, I turned and looked into my darling's face. Her eyes met mine, and although they were full of a happiness which I had never seen in them before, they filled with tears, and their dear owner dropped her head on my shoulder. What we said on that long drive would not interest the reader. I have learned by experience to skip all love-talks in novels, no matter how delightful the lovers may be. Recalling now our conversation, it does not seem to me to have had anything wonderful in it. I will only say that if I had been happy on the evening before, my happiness now seemed to be sanctified, to be favoured with the love and confidence of a simple girl scarcely past her childhood, is to receive a greater honour than court or field can bestow. But even this honour is far surpassed by that which comes to a man when a woman of rare intelligence, tact and knowledge of society, and the world, unburdens her heart of all its hopes and fears, and unhesitatingly leaves her destiny to be shaped by his love. Women like Alice Mayton do not thus give themselves unreservedly away, except when their trust is born of knowledge as well as affection, and the realization of all this changed me on that afternoon from whatever I had been, into what I had long hoped I might one day be. But the hours flew rapidly and I reluctantly turned the horses' heads homeward. We had left almost the whole of Happy Valley behind us, and were approaching residences again. "'Now we must be very proper,' said Alice. "'Certainly,' I replied. "'Here's a good-bye to happy nonsense for this afternoon.' I leaned toward her, and gently placed one arm about her neck. She raised her dear face, from which joy and trust had banished every indication of caution and reserve, my lips sought hers, when suddenly we heard a most unearthly discordant shriek, which presently separated into two, each of which prolonged itself indefinitely. The horses started, and Alice, blessed be all frights now, henceforth and forevermore, clung tightly to me. The sounds seemed to be approaching us, and were accompanied by a lively rattling noise that seemed to be made by something wooden. Suddenly, as we approached a bend of the road, I saw my youngest nephew appear from some unknown space, describe a parabolic curve in the air, ricochet slightly from an earthy protuberance in the road, and make a final stop in the gutter. At the same time there appeared from behind the bend the goat, 
then the carriage dragging on one side, and lastly the boy Budge, grasping tightly the back of the carriage body and howling frightfully. A direct collision between the carriage and a stone caused Budge to loose his hold, while the goat, after taking in the scene, trotted leisurely off, and disappeared in a road leading to the house of his late owner. "'Budge!' I shouted. "'Stop that bawling and come here. Where's Mike?' He, boo-hoo, went to hoo light his hoo-hoo-hoo pipe, and I just let the boo-hoo-hoo whip go against the goat, and then he scattooed. "'Nashty old goat scattooed,' said Toddy in corroboration." "'Well, walk right home and tell Maggie to wash and dress you,' said I. "'Oh, Harry,' pleaded Alice, "'after they've been in such danger, "'come here to your own Aunt Alice, Budgie dear, and you too, Toddy. "'You know you said we could pick the boys up on the road, Harry. "'There, there, don't cry. "'Let me wipe the ugly old dirt off you and kiss the face and make it well.' "'Alice,' I protested, "'don't let those dirty boys clamber all over you in that way.' "'Silence, sir,' said she, with mock dignity. "'Who gave me my lover, I should like to ask?' So we drove up to the boarding-house, with the air of people who had been devoting themselves to a couple of very disreputable children, and I drove swiftly away again, lest the children should dispel the illusion. We soon met Mike running. The moment he recognized us, he shouted, "'Ay, ye little divils, biggin your pardon, Master Harry, and thankin the holy mither that their good-for-nothin little bones ain't broke to bits. Av they saw a hippopotamus hitched to Pharaoh's chariot, they'd think themselves just the boys to take the bossin of it, the spalpeens.' But no number of ordinary hippopotami and chariots could have disturbed the heavenly tranquillity of my mind on this most glorious of evenings.' Even a subtle sense of the fitness of things seemed to overshadow my nephews. Perhaps the touch of my enchantress did it. Perhaps it came only from the natural relapse from great excitement. But no matter what the reason was, the fact remains that for the rest of the evening two very dirty suits of clothes held two children who gave one some idea of how the denizens of paradise might seem and act. They even ate their suppers without indulging in any of the repulsive ways of which they had so large an assortment, and they did not surreptitiously remove from the table any fragments of bread and butter to leave on the piano, in the card-basket, and other places inappropriate to the reception of such varieties of abandoned property. They demanded a song after supper, but when I sang, "'Drink to me only with thine eyes,' and "'Thou, thou reign'st in this bosom,' they stood by with silent tongues and appreciative eyes. When they went to bed, I accompanied them by special invitation, but they showed no disposition to engage in the usual bedtime frolic and miniature pandemonium. Budge, when in bed, closed his eyes, folded his hand, and prayed. "'Dear Lord, bless Papa and Mamma and Toddy and Uncle Harry and everybody else,' "'Yes, and bless just lots that lovely, lovely lady "'that comforted me after the goat was bad to me, "'and let her comfort me lots of times, for Christ's sake, amen.' "'And Toddy wriggled, twisted, breathed heavily, "'threw his head back, and prayed, "'Dee, Lord, don't let that old goat throw me into the gutter on my head again, "'and let Uncle Howie and the pity lady be there next time I'd hurted.' "'Then the good-night salutations were exchanged.' 
and I left the little darlings, and enjoyed communion with my own thoughts, which were as peaceful and ecstatic as if the world contained no white goods houses, no doubtful customers, no business competition, no politics, gold rooms, stock boards, doubtful banks, political scandals, personal iniquity, nor anything which should prevent a short vacation from lasting through a long lifetime. End of section 7. Read by Kara Schallenberg on January 25th, 2008, in San Diego, California. Helen's Babies, Part 8. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Helen's Babies by John Haberton, Part 8. The next morning would have struck terror to the heart of any one but a newly accepted lover. Rain was falling fast, and in that steady, industrious manner which seemed to assert an intention to stick closely to business for the whole day. The sky was covered by one impenetrable leaden cloud, water stood in pools in the streets which were soft with dust a few hours before. The flowers all hung their heads like vagabonds who had been awake all night and were ashamed to face the daylight. Even the chickens stood about in dejected attitudes, and stray roosters from other poultry-yards found refuge in Tom's coop without first being subjected to a trial of strength and skill by Tom's gamecock. But no man in my condition of mind could be easily depressed by bad weather. I would rather have been able to drive about under a clear sky, or lounge under the trees, or walk to the post-office in the afternoon by the road which passed directly in front of Mrs. Clarkson's boarding-house. But man should not live for himself alone. In the room next mine were slumbering two wee people to whom I owed a great deal, who would mourn bitterly when they saw the condition of the skies and ground. I would devote myself to the task of making them so happy that they would forget the absence of sunshine out of doors. I would sit by their bedside and have a story ready for them the moment they awoke, and put them in such a good humour that they could laugh, with me, at cloud and rain. I began at once to construct a story for their especial benefit. The scene was to be a country residence on a rainy day, and the actors two little boys who should become uproariously jolly in spite of the weather. Like most people not used to story-making, my progress was not very rapid. In fact, I had got no farther than the plot indicated above, when an angry snarl came from the children's room. "'What's the matter, Budge?' I shouted, dressing myself as rapidly as possible. "'Ow, yang, um, was the somewhat complicated response. "'What did you say, Budge?' "'Didn't say nothin'. "'Oh, that's what I thought.' "'Didn't thought.' "'Budge, Budge, be good. "'Don't want to be good. "'Yah!' "'Let's have some fun, Budge. "'Don't you want to frolic?' "'No, I don't think frolic is nice.' "'Don't you want some candy, Budge?' "'No, you ain't got no candy, I believe.' "'Well, you shan't have any if you don't stop being so cross.' The only reply to this was a mighty and audible rustling of the bedding in the boy's room, followed by a sound strongly resembling that caused by a slap. Then came a prolonged wail resembling that of an ungreased wagon-wheel. "'What's the matter, Toddy?' 
Budge slapped me. Ah! What made you slap your brother, Budge? I didn't. You did, screamed Toddy. I tell you I didn't. You're a naughty bad boy to tell such lies, Toddy. What did you do, Budge? I asked. Why, why, I was... I was turnin' over in bed, and my hand was out, and it tumbled against to Toddy, that's what. By this time I was dressed and in the boys' room. Both my nephews were sitting up in bed, Budge looking as sullen as an old jailbird, and Toddy with tears streaming all over his face. "'Boys,' said I, "'don't be angry with each other. It isn't right. What do you suppose the Lord thinks when he sees you so cross to each other?' "'He don't think nothin', said Budge. "'You don't think he can look through a black sky like that, do you?' "'He can look anywhere, Budge, "'and he feels very unhappy when he sees little brothers angry with each other.' "'Well, I feel unhappy, too. "'I wish there wasn't never no old rain nor nothin'. "'Then what would the plants and flowers do for a drink, "'and where would the rivers come from for you to go sailing on?' "'I want to make mud pies,' added Toddy. "'You's a naughty boy, Budge.' And here Toddy's tears began to flow afresh. "'I ain't a bad boy, and I don't want no old rain nohow, and that's all about it. And I don't want to get up, and Maggie must bring me up my breakfast in bed.' "'Boo-hoo!' wept Toddy. "'Wants my breps pup in bed, too.' "'Boys,' said I, "'now listen. "'You can't have any breakfast at all "'unless you are up and dressed by the time the bell rings. "'The rising bell rang some time ago. "'Now dress like good boys, and you shall have some breakfast, "'and then you'll feel a great deal nicer, "'and then Uncle Harry will play with you "'and tell you stories all day long.' "'Budge crept reluctantly out of bed "'and caught up one of his stockings, "'while Toddy again began to cry.' "'Toddy!' I shouted. "'Stop that dreadful racket and dress yourself. "'What are you crying for?' "'Well, I feels bad.' "'Well, dress yourself, and you'll feel better.' "'Want you to dress me?' "'Bring me your clothes, then, quick.' "'Again the tears flowed copiously. "'Don't want to bring em, said Toddy. "'Then come here,' I shouted. "'dragging him across the room "'and snatching up his tiny articles of apparel. "'I had dressed no small children "'since I was rather a small boy myself, "'and Toddy's clothing confused me somewhat. "'I finally got something on him "'when a contemptuous laugh from Budge interrupted me. "'How you gonna put his shirt on under them things?' "'queried my oldest nephew. "'Budge,' I retorted, "'how are you going to get any breakfast "'if you don't put on something besides that stocking?' The young man's countenance fell, and just then the breakfast bell rang. Budge raised a blank face, hurried to the head of the stairs, and shouted, "'Maggie!' "'What is it, Budge?' "'Was, was that the rising bell or the breakfast bell?' "'Twas the breakfast bell.' There was dead silence for a moment, and then Budge shouted, "'Well, we'll call that the rising bell. You can ring another bell for breakfast pretty soon when I get dressed.' Then this volunteer adjuster of household affairs came calmly back and commenced dressing in good earnest, while I labored along with Toddy's wardrobe. "'Where's the button-hook, Budge?' said I. "'It's... I... oh... um... I put it... Say, Todd, what did you do with the button-hook yesterday?' "'Didn't have no button-hook,' asserted Toddy. 
"'Yes, you did. Don't you remember how he was playing draw teeth, "'and the doctor's dog had the toothache, "'and I was pulling his teeth with the button-hook, "'and you was my little boy, and I gived the tooth-puller to you to hold for me? "'Where did you put it?' "'I'd know,' replied Toddy, "'putting his hand in his pocket and bringing out a sickly-looking toad. "'Feel again,' said I, throwing the toad out the window, "'where it was followed by an agonizing shriek from Toddy.' Again he felt, and his search was rewarded by the tension-screw of Helen's sewing-machine. Then I attempted some research myself, and speedily found my fingers adhering to something of a sticky consistency. I quickly withdrew my hand, exclaiming, "'What nasty stuff have you got in your pocket, Toddy?' "'Tain't nasty stuff. It's bread and yasses, and it's nice, and Budge and me has little tea-parties in de kitchen coop, and we eats it, and it's dovely.' All this was lucid and disgusting, but utterly unproductive of button-hooks, and meanwhile the breakfast was growing cold. I succeeded in buttoning Toddy's shoes with my fingers, splitting most of my nails in the operation. I had been too busily engaged with Toddy to pay any attention to Budge, who I now found about half-dressed, and trying to catch flies on the window-pane. Snatching Toddy, I started for the dining-room, when Budge remarked reprovingly, "'Uncle Harry, you wasn't dressed when the bell rang, and you oughtn't to have any breakfast.' "'True enough. I was minus collar, cravat, and coat. Hurrying these on, and starting again, I was once more arrested. "'Uncle Harry, must I brush my teeth this morning?' "'No, hurry up. Come down without doing anything more, if you like. But come. It'll be dinner-time before we get breakfast.' Then that imp was moved, for the first time that morning, to something like good nature, and he exclaimed with a giggle, "'My, what big stomachs we'd have when we got done, wouldn't we?' At the breakfast-table Toddy wept again, because I insisted on beginning operations before Budge came. Then neither boy knew exactly what he wanted. Then Budge managed to upset the contents of his plate into his lap, and while I was helping him clear away the debris, Toddy improved the opportunity to pour his milk upon his fish, and put several spoonfuls of oatmeal porridge into my coffee-cup. I made an early excuse to leave the table and turn the children over to Maggie. I felt as tired as if I had done a hard day's work, and was somewhat appalled at realizing that the day had barely begun. I lit a cigar and sat down to Helen's piano. I am not a musician, but even the chords of a hand-organ would have seemed sweet music to me on that morning. The music-book nearest to my hand was a church hymn-book, and the first air my eye struck was Greenville. I lived once in a town where, on a single day, a peddler disposed of thirty-eight accordions, each with an instruction-book in which the same air under its original name was the only air. For years after, a single bar of this air awakened the most melancholy reflections in my mind, but now I forgave all my musical tormentors as the familiar strains came comfortingly from the piano keys. But suddenly I heard an accompaniment, a sort of reedy sound, and looking around I saw Toddy again in tears. I stopped abruptly and asked, "'What's the matter now, Toddy?' "'Don't want dat old tune. Watch dancin' tune, so I can dance.' I promptly played Yankee Doodle, and Toddy began to trot around the room with the expression of a man who intended to do his whole duty. Then Budge appeared, hugging a bound volume of St. Nicholas. 
The moment Toddie espied this, he stopped dancing and devoted himself anew to the task of weeping. "'Toddie!' I shouted, springing from the piano-stool. "'What do you mean by crying at everything? I shall have to put you to bed again if you're going to be such a baby.' "'That's the way he always does, rainy days,' explained Budge. "'Wanch to see the whale what followed Jonah,' sobbed Toddie. "'Can't you demand something that's within the range of possibility, Toddie?' I mildly asked. "'The whale Toddie means is in this big red book. I'll find it for you,' said Budge, turning over the leaves. Suddenly a rejoicing squeal from Toddie announced that Leviathan had been found, and I hastened to gaze. He was certainly a dreadful-looking animal, but he had an enormous mouth, which Toddie caressed with his pudgy little hand, and kissed with tenderness, murmuring as he did so, "'Dee, old whale, I loves you. Is Jonah all gonded out of you tummock, whale? I fixed twas we mean in Jonah to get foed up when you hadn't nothin' else to eat, poor old whale.' "'Of course Jonah's gone,' said Budge. "'He went to heaven long ago, pretty soon after he went to Nineveh and done what the Lord told him to do. Now swing us, Uncle Harry.' The swing was on the piazza, under cover from the rain, so I obeyed. Both boys fought for the right to swing first, and when I decided in favor of Budge, Toddy went off weeping, and declaring that he would look at his dear whale anyhow. A moment later his wail changed to a piercing shriek, and running to his assistance I saw him holding one finger tenderly and trampling on a wasp. "'What's the matter, Toddy?' Oh, ee, I putted my finger on a wops, and ooh, the nasty wops, ooh, bited me, and I don't like wopses a bit, but I likes whales, ooh, ee. A happy thought struck me. Why don't you boys make believe that big packing box in your playroom is a whale, said I. A compound shriek of delight followed the suggestion, and both boys scrambled upstairs, leaving me a free man again. I looked remorsefully at the table full of books which I had brought to read, and had not looked at for a week. Even now my remorse did not move me to open them. I found myself instead attracted toward Tom's library, and conning the titles of novels and volumes of poems. My eye was caught by Initial, a love story which I had always avoided, because I had heard impressionable young ladies rave about it. But now I picked it up and dropped into an easy-chair." Suddenly I heard Mike the coachman shouting, "'Go away from there, will ye? Ah, ye little spalpeen, it's good for ye that your father don't see ye perched up there. Go away from that, or I'll be tellin' your uncle.' "'Don't care for nasty old uncle,' piped Toddy's voice. I laid down my book with a sigh and went into the garden. Mike saw me and shouted, "'Mr. Burton, will ye look there? Did yez ever see the like o' dat by?' Looking up at the playroom window, a long, narrow sort of loophole in a gothic gable, I beheld my youngest nephew standing upright on the sill. "'Toddy, go in, quick!' I shouted, hurrying under the window to catch him in case he fell outward. "'I can't!' squealed Toddy. "'Mike, run upstairs and snatch him in. Toddy, go on, I tell you.' "'Tell you I can't go in,' repeated Toddy. "'Je bit bots is je whale, and I's Jonah, and ze whales fwoed me up, "'and I's dot to tay up here, else ze whale'll follow me a den.' 
I won't let him swallow you. Get in now, hurry, said I. Will you give him a penny not to swallow me no more? queried Toddy. Yes, a whole lot of pennies. All right, whale, don't you swallow me no more, and zen my ockin howie div you whole lots of pennies. You must be weal dood whale now, and then I buys you some tandy with your pennies, and... Just then two great hands seized Toddy's frock in front, and he disappeared with a howl, while I, with the first feeling of faintness I had ever experienced, went in search of hammer, nails, and some strips of board, to nail on the outside of the window frame. But boards could not be found, so I went up to the playroom and began to knock a piece or two off the box which had done duty as whale. A pitiful scream from Toddy caused me to stop. "'You're hurtin' my dee old whale! You's breakin' his tomach all open! You's a baddie man! Top hurtin' my whale! Eee!' cried my nephew. "'I'm not hurting him, Toddy,' said I. "'I'm making his mouth bigger, so he can swallow you easier.' A bright thought came into Toddy's face, and shone through his tears. "'Then he can swallow Budgie, too, and there'll be two Jonas! Ha, ha, ha! Make his mouth so big he can swallow Mike, and Zen made it little again, so Mike can det out! Nashty old Mike!' I explained that Mike would not come upstairs again, so I was permitted to depart after securing the window. Again I settled myself with book and cigar. There was, at least for me, the extra enjoyment that comes from the sense of pleasure earned by honest toil. Pretty soon Budge entered the room. I affected not to notice him, but he was not in the least abashed by my neglect. "'Uncle Harry,' said he, throwing himself in my lap between my book and me, "'I don't feel a bit nice.' "'What's the matter, old fellow?' I asked. Until he spoke I could have boxed his ears with great satisfaction to myself, but there is so much genuine feeling in whatever Budge says that he commands respect. "'Oh, I'm tired of playing with Toddy, and I feel lonesome. Won't you tell me a story?' "'Then what'll poor Toddy do, Budge?' "'Oh, he won't mind. He's got a dead mouse to be Jonah now, so I don't have no fun at all. Won't you tell me a story?' Which one? Tell me one that I never heard before at all. Well, let's see. I guess I'll tell. Ah, sounded afar off, but fatefully. It came nearer. It came down the stairway and into the library, accompanied by Toddy, who, on spying me, dropped his inarticulate utterance, held up both hands, and exclaimed, Jonah bwoke he tail. True enough. In one hand, Toddy held the body of a mouse, and in the other, that animal's caudal appendage. There was also perceptible, though not by the sense of sight, an objectionable odor in the room. Toddy, said I, go throw Jonah into the chicken coop, and I'll give you some candy. Me too, shouted Budge, cause I found the mouse for him. I made both boys happy with candy, exacted a pledge not to go out in the rain, and then, turning them loose on the piazza, returned to my book. I had read perhaps half a dozen pages when there arose and swelled rapidly in volume a scream from Toddy. Madly determined to put both boys into chairs, tie them, and clap adhesive plaster over their mouths, I rushed out upon the piazza. "'Budgie tried to eat my candy,' complained Toddy. 
"'I didn't,' said Budge. "'What did you do?' I demanded. "'I didn't bite it at all. "'I only wanted to see how it would feel between my teeth. "'That's all.' "'I felt the corners of my mouth breaking down "'and hurried back to the library, "'where I spent a quiet quarter of an hour "'in pondering over the demoralizing influence "'exerted upon principle by a sense of the ludicrous.' For some time afterward the boys got along without doing anything worse than make a dreadful noise, which caused me to resolve to find some method of deadening piazza floors if I ever owned a house in the country. In the occasional intervals of comparative quiet I caught snatches of very funny conversation. The boys had coined a great many words whose meaning was evident enough, but I wonder greatly why Tom and Helen had never taught them the proper substitutes." Among others was the word deader, whose meaning I could not imagine. Bud shouted, "'Oh, Todd, there comes a deader. See where all them things like roosters' tails are a-shaken? Well, there's a deader under them.' "'That's funny,' remarked Toddy. "'And see all the peoples a-comin' along,' continued Budge. "'They know about the deader, and they're goin' to see it fixed. Here it comes. Hello, deader! Heyo, deader!' echoed Toddy. What could deader mean? Oh, here it is right in front of us, cried Budge, and ain't there lots of people and two horses to pull the deader? Some deaders has only one. My curiosity was too much for my weariness. I went to the front window and peering through saw a funeral procession. In a second I was on the piazza, with my hands on the children's collars. A second later two small boys were on the floor of the hall, the front door was closed, and two determined hands covered two threatening little mouths. End of Part 8 Read by Kara Schallenberg On January 30th, 2008 In San Diego, California Helen's Babies, Part 9. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Helen's Babies by John Haberton, Part 9. When the procession had fairly passed the house, I released the boys and heard two prolonged howls for my pains. Then I asked Budge if he wasn't ashamed to talk that way when a funeral was passing. "'Twasn't a funeral,' said he. "'Twas only a deader, and deaders can't hear nothing.' "'But the people in the carriages could,' said I. "'Well,' said he, "'they was so glad that the other part of the deader had gone to heaven that they didn't care what I said. Everybody's glad when the other parts of deaders go to heaven.' Papa told me to be glad that dear little Philly was in heaven, and I was, but I do want to see him again awful. "'Want to see Philly again awful,' said Toddy, as I kissed Budge and hurried off to the library, unfit just then to administer farther instruction or reproof. Of one thing I was very certain. I wished the rain would cease falling so the children could go out of doors, and I could get a little rest and freedom from responsibility.' but the skies showed no signs of being emptied, the boys were snarling on the stairway, and I was losing my temper quite rapidly. 
suddenly I bethought me of one of the delights of my own childish days, the making of scrapbooks. One of Tom's library drawers held a great many ladies' journals. Of course Helen meant to have them bound, but I could easily repurchase the numbers for her. They would cost two or three dollars, but peace was cheap at that price. On a high shelf in the playroom I had seen some supplementary volumes of mercantile agency reports, which would in time reach the rag-bag. There was a bottle of mucilage in the library desk, and the children owned an old pair of scissors. Within five minutes I had located two happy children on the bathroom floor, taught them to cut out pictures, which operation I quickly found they understood as well as I did, and to paste them into the extemporized scrapbook. Then I left them, recalling something from Newman Hall's address on the dignity of labor. Why hadn't I thought before of showing my nephews some way of occupying their mind and hands? Who could blame the helpless little things for following every prompting of their unguided minds? Had I not a hundred times been told, when sent to the woodpile or the weediest part of the garden in my youthful days, that Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do? Never again would I blame children for being mischievous when their minds were neglected. I spent a peaceful, pleasant hour over my novel, when I felt that a fresh cigar would be acceptable. Going upstairs in search of one, I found that Budge had filled the bathtub with water, and was sailing boats, that is, hair-brushes. Even this seemed too mild an offence to call for a rebuke, so I passed on without disturbing him, and went to my own room. I heard Toddy's voice, and having heard from my sister that Toddy's conversations with himself were worth listening to, I paused outside the door. I heard Toddy softly murmur, "'Zare, pity lady, tay zare. Now, ittle boy, I put you with your mudder, tos mudders like zare little boys with em. And you shall have ittle sister tudder side of you, zare. Now, ittle boys and ittle girls mudder, don't you feel happy?' "'Isn't I awful good to give you your ittle childrens? "'You ought to say, "'Thank you, Toddy. "'You's a nice, sweet little gentleman.' "'I peered cautiously. "'Then I entered the room hastily. "'I didn't say anything for a moment, "'for it was impossible to do justice, impromptu, to the subject. "'Toddy had a progressive mind. "'If pictorial ornamentation was good for old books,' Why should not similar ornamentation be extended to objects more likely to be seen? Such may not have been Toddy's line of thought, but his recent operations warranted such a supposition. He had cut out a number of pictures, and pasted them upon the wall of my room, my sister's darling room, with its walls tinted exquisitely in pink. As a member of a hanging committee, Toddy would hardly have satisfied taller people, but he had arranged the pictures quite regularly, at about the height of his own eyes, had favoured no one artist more than another, and had hung indiscriminately figure-pieces, landscapes, and genre-pictures. The temporary break of wall-line occasioned by the door communicating with his own room, he had overcome by closing the door and carrying a line of pictures across its lower panels. Occasionally a picture fell off the wall, but the mucilage remained faithful, and glistened with its fervour of devotion. And yet so untouched was I by this artistic display, that when I found strength to shout, "'Toddy!' 
It was in a tone which caused this industrious amateur decorator to start violently and drop his mucilage bottle, open end first, upon the carpet. "'What will Mamma say?' I asked. Toddy gazed, first blankly, and then inquiringly into my face. Finding no answer or sympathy there, he burst into tears and replied, "'I dunno.' The ringing of the lunch-bell changed Toddy from a tearful cherub into a very practical, business-like boy, and shouting, "'Come on, Budge!' he hurried downstairs, while I tormented myself with wonder as to how I could best and most quickly undo the mischief Toddy had done. I will concede to my nephews the credit of keeping reasonably quiet during meals. Their tongues doubtless longed to be active in both the principal capacities of those useful members, but they had no doubt as to how to choose between silence and hunger. The result was a reasonably comfortable half-hour. Just as I began to cut a melon, Budge broke the silence by exclaiming, "'Oh, Uncle Harry, we haven't been out to see the goat to-day.' "'Budge,' I replied, "'I'll carry you out there under an umbrella after lunch, "'and you may play with that goat all the afternoon, if you like.' "'Oh, won't that be nice!' exclaimed Budge. "'The poor goat! He'll think I don't love him a bit, "'cause I haven't been to see him to-day. "'Does goats go to heaven when they die, Uncle Harry?' "'Guess not. They'd make trouble in the golden streets, I'm afraid.' "'Oh, dear, then Philly can't see my goat. I'm so awful sorry,' said Budge. "'I can see your goat, Budgie,' suggested Toddy. "'Huh,' said Budge, very contemptuously. "'You ain't dead.' "'Well, I's going to be dead some day, and zen your nasty old goat shan't see me a bit. See how he likes that.' And Toddy made a ferocious attack on a slice of melon nearly as large as himself." After lunch Toddy was sent to his room to take his afternoon nap, and Budge went to the barn on my shoulders. I gave Mike a dollar, with instructions to keep Budge in sight, to keep him from teasing the goat, and to prevent his being impaled or butted. Then I stretched myself on a lounge, and wondered whether only half a day of daylight had elapsed, since I and the most adorable woman in the world had been so happy together. How much happier I would be when next I met her! The very torments of this rainy day would make my joy seem all the dearer and more intense. I dreamed happily for a few moments with my eyes open, and then somehow they closed, without my knowledge. What put into my mind the wreck scene from the play of David Copperfield I don't know, but there it came, and in my dream I was sitting in the balcony at Booth's, and taking a proper interest in the scene, when it occurred to me that the thunder had less of reverberation and more woodenness than good stage thunder should have. The mental exertion I underwent on this subject disturbed the course of my nap, but as wakefulness returned, the sound of the poorly simulated thunder did not cease. On the contrary, it was just as noisy and more hopelessly a counterfeit than ever. What could the sound be? I stepped through the window to the piazza, and the sound was directly over my head. I sprang down the terrace and out upon the lawn, looked up, and beheld my youngest nephew strutting back and forth on the tin roof of the piazza, holding over his head a ragged old parasol. I roared, "'Go in, Toddy, this instant!' 
The sound of my voice startled the young man so severely that he lost his footing, fell, and began to roll toward the edge, and to scream, both operations being performed with great rapidity. I ran to catch him as he fell, but the outer edge of the water trough was high enough to arrest his progress, though it had no effect in reducing the volume of his howls. Toddy, I shouted, lie perfectly still until uncle can get to you. Do you hear? Es, but don't want to lie till, came in reply from the roof. Tan't she nuffin but sky and rain. Lie still, I reiterated, or I'll whip you dreadfully. Then I dashed upstairs, removed my shoes, climbed out and rescued Toddy, shook him soundly, and then shook myself. I was only just pyayin' mamma and walkin' in jayane with an umbayala, Toddy explained. I threw him upon his bed and departed. It was plain that neither logic, threats, nor the presence of danger could keep this dreadful child from doing whatever he chose. What other means of restraint could be employed? Although not as religious a man as my good mother could wish, I really wondered whether prayer, as a last resort, might not be effective. For his good and my own peace, I would cheerfully have read through the whole prayer book. I could hardly have done it just then, though, for Mike solicited an audience at the back door, and reported that Budge had given the carriage sponge to the goat, put handfuls of oats into the pump cylinder, pulled hairs out of the black mare's tail, and with a sharp nail drawn pictures on the enamel of the carriage body. Budge made no denial, but looked very much aggrieved, and remarked that he couldn't never be happy without somebody havin' to go get bothered, and he wished there wasn't nobody in the world but organ grinders and candy store men. He followed me into the house, flung himself into a chair, put on a look which I imagine Byron wore before he was old enough to be malicious, and exclaimed, I don't see what little boys was made for anyhow if everybody gets cross with them and don't let them do what they want to. I'll bet when I get to heaven the Lord won't be as ugly to me as Mike is, and some other folks too. I wish I could die and be buried right away, me and the goat, and go to heaven where we wouldn't be scolded. Poor little fellow! First I laughed inwardly at his idea of heaven, and then I wondered whether my own was very different from it, or any more creditable. I had no time to spend even in pious reflection, however. Budge was quite wet, his shoes were soaking, and he already had an attack of catarrh, so I took him to his room and redressed him, wondering all the while how much similar duties my own father had had to do by me had shortened his life. And how, with such a son as I was, he lived as long as he did. The idea that I was in some slight degree atoning for my early sins so filled my thoughts that I did not at first notice the absence of Toddy. When it did become evident to me that my youngest nephew was not in the bed in which I had placed him, I went in search of him. He was in none of the chambers, but hearing gentle murmurs issue from a long light closet, I looked in and saw Toddy sitting on the floor and eating the cheese out of a mouse trap. A squeak of my boots betrayed me, and Toddy, equal to the emergency, sprang to his feet and exclaimed, I didn't hurt the ittle mousy one biddy. I just letted him out, and he runned it away. And still it rained. Oh, for a single hour of sunlight, so that the mud might be only damp dirt, and the children could play without tormenting other people. But it was not to be. Slowly, and by the aid of songs, stories, and improvised menagerie, 
in which I personated every animal, besides playing ostrich and armadillo, and a great many disagreements, the afternoon wore to its close, and my heart slowly lightened. Only an hour or two more, and the children would be in bed for the night, and then I would enjoy, in unutterable measure, the peaceful hours which would be mine. Even now they were inclined to behave themselves, they were tired and hungry, and stretched themselves on the floor to await dinner. I embraced the opportunity to return to my book, but I had hardly read a page when a combined crash and scream summoned me to the dining-room. On the floor lay Toddy, a great many dishes, a roast leg of lamb, several ears of green corn, the butter-dish and its contents, and several other misplaced edibles. One thing was quite evident. The scalding contents of the gravy-dish had been emptied on Toddy's arm, and how severely the poor child might be scalded I did not know. I hastily slit open his sleeve from wrist to shoulder, and found the skin very red. So, remembering my mother's favorite treatment for scalds and burns, I quickly spread the contents of a dish of mashed potato on a clean handkerchief, and wound the whole around Toddy's arm as a poultice. Then I demanded an explanation. "'I was only just reachin' for a piece of bread,' sobbed Toddy, "'and then the bad old table beginned to fall all its fings at me, and tumble down bang.' He undoubtedly told the truth as far as he knew it, but reaching over tables is a bad habit in small boys, especially when their mothers cling to old-fashioned heirlooms of tables, which have folding leaves. So I banished Toddy to his room, supperless, to think of what he had done.' With Budge alone I had a comfortable dinner off the salvage from the wreck caused by Toddy, and then I went upstairs to see if the offender had repented. It was hard to tell, by sight, whether he had or not, for his back was to me as he flattened his nose against the window, but I could see that my poultice was gone. "'Where is what Uncle put on your arm, Toddy?' I asked. "'I ate it up,' said the truthful youth. "'Did you eat the handkerchief, too?' "'No, I fwoed nasty old handkerchief out the window. "'Don't want dirty old handkerchiefs in my nice little room.' "'I was so glad that his burn had been slight "'that I forgave the insult to my handkerchief, "'and called up Budge, "'so that I might at once get both boys into bed "'and emerge from the bondage in which I had lived all day long. "'But the task was no easy one. Of course, my brother-in-law, Tom Lawrence, knows better than any other man the necessities of his own children, but no children of mine shall ever be taught so many methods of imposing upon parental good-nature. Their programme called for stories, songs, moral conversations, frolics, the presentation of pennies, the dropping of the same, at long intervals, into tin savings-banks, followed by a deafening shaking-up of both banks— then a prayer must be offered, and no conventional one would be tolerated. Then the boys performed their own devotions, after which I was allowed to depart, with an interchange of God bless you's. As this evening I left the room with their innocent benedictions sounding in my ears, a sense of personal weakness, induced by the events of the day, moved me to fervently respond, Amen. End of Part 9, read by Kara Schallenberg, on January 30th, 2008, in San Diego, California.